You're listening to Titan Nature's Yellowstone, a podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Sponsored by Think Tank Photo. Think Tank Photo designs camera carrying solutions for working professionals. If you're still listening, that's pretty good. This is episode three, and this is Adam Brubaker, your host. I want to talk to you a little bit about the history of Yellowstone today. I think it's one of my favorite subjects in Yellowstone. There's all kinds of history. I love, I love the mountain men. You know, it's probably my favorite part of the history of the park. There's a lot. You could go back. Well, the anthropologist in Yellowstone uh, gave a presentation to some guides a few years ago, and she was talking about how and date the human history back in Yellowstone now about 11,000 years. And after she was done talking, I believe it was the geologist got up and said, 11,000 years, that's incredible. Says, you know, that uh, with our rocks, that some of our rocks, we can date back about a billion years now. That's just incredible, those times. I mean, even going back 11,000 years is hard to fathom, but going back a billion is incredible. But with that human history going back 11,000 years, we don't know a whole lot. You know, we have clues to the past. Uh, you know, the, the different Native American tribes that were in this area that, that we're more familiar with is going to be tribes like the Blackfeet, the Crow, uh, the Shoshone. You know, the Blackfeet was further to the north. The Crow was to the east and the Shoshone was, was to the south. But that's just three of the, you know, I think it's 25 tribes that you can associate with Yellowstone or right around 25 tribes. A lot of those tribes are still associated with Yellowstone in one way or the other. You know, a couple of those things, as far as that history in Yellowstone, we know a little bit about it and we have, you know, names or things that kind of point us back to the past. I I know where you can find a couple teepee rings in the park. One of the things that I find fascinating is with the Shoshone or Shoshone their tribe would be split off into different groups, from what I understand, through part of the year. And you'd have these, these different groups from the sheep eaters, the grovant, the snakes, uh, I think there was elk eaters, the cliff dwellers. They'd have these different groups. And with the sheep eaters specifically, if you've been to Yellowstone or if you're going to Yellowstone, there's a, there's a place between Mammoth Hot Springs and Norris. It's closer to Mammoth, just south of Swan Lake Flats. There's the sheep eater hike and the sheep eater picnic area. And the sheep eaters, they were a band of natives and they would forego horses because of the areas that they would go and they would be in favor of dogs as they would go into these higher elevations to follow the sheep, the bighorn sheep, which was a part of their diet. And understand this was in Yellowstone as well as places in Idaho. One of the things that they would do that was unique was they would take the horns from a ram, they soak them in the hot water in these springs. And you could manipulate or unravel the horn and stretch it out. And then they would work these horns and they, over time, they would shape them and lash two of them together. And they were making a big horn sheep bow out of it. There's a great video of a guy doing this out in Dubois, Wyoming. You can find that in the show notes here of this video of, of how they did it. And he kind of recreates this. But I think that was, that was pretty incredible to... And I always tell people, you know, I wonder how they found that out. You know, was it one guy was carrying around a sheep head and tripped and fell and it fell in the hot springs and they're like, oh, look what happens. Or, 
you know, if it was more intuitive than that, then they said, hey, we should give this a try. And actually, we're experimenting with it. Oh, it's a neat thing. And, you know, and on top of that, you have this sheep horn bow. They said it was very strong. Won't it lose its spring? And then you have obsidian. You have lots of obsidian in Yellowstone. And obsidian is that black glass, shiny rock that uh, natives made arrowheads out of. From what I understand, you can get obsidian very sharp. If you do a Google search and look up obsidian scalpel, and I think there's still doctors that will use this in surgery. Anyways, between this bow or, you know, any natives with their bows, you get this arrow on there made of the obsidian, and it was a great tool for hunting. And, you know, not only hunting, they would use that for other purposes too, whether it was, you know, protection or for different tools, scraping hides. So there was many uses of that obsidian, and there's a lot of it in Yellowstone. Anywhere you go, well, just about anywhere you go, you know, around Yellowstone Lake is a great example. Maybe you're on the shore of the lake. You know, pick up a handful of that gravel and look through it. Look at all those little black specks. It's all obsidian. You have obsidian cliff. With obsidian cliff or with anything, please don't put it in your pocket. You know, you think, well, it's just one little piece of rock. Well, if 4 million people do that every year, it's 4 million pieces of rock that disappear. Anyways, there's obsidian cliff in Yellowstone, which just has this whole cliffside is covered in this obsidian. They were redoing this road the last couple of years, and it's really nice because there's this nice pullout. You can stop and you can get a great look at this cliffside and see all this obsidian, especially on a sunny day. It kind of glistens. It was a resource in Yellowstone that was used by the natives, and they had this trade route. And they have found obsidian or arrowheads as far away as Maine that they can trace back to Yellowstone specifically from Obsidian Cliff. So you have this, you have this Native American history. You know, technically it's the natives or the Yellowstone gets its name from, which I'll get into that in, in just a little bit. In about 1807, we see our first white man, our first Euro-American in Yellowstone. It was a man by the name of John Coulter. At least he's the one that gets credit for it. You know, I figure maybe there was somebody before him that tried the cannonball approach to the hot springs and it didn't end out well, but He's the, the first one that we, we give credit to or most of the credit to for exploring or coming in Yellowstone and starting to tell stories about it. And from what I've read, you know, he was on the, the south and the east side of Yellowstone, maybe around Yellowstone Lake, made his way north up by the canyon and out through Lamar Valley somewhere. And John Coulter, I mean, he saw some of the things that were here and he didn't know how to you know, he, he didn't know what a geyser was or a hot spring or this, this sulfur smell that he could smell in the air. And he went back and he told stories about it. And one of the ways that he would describe the area, or, you know, tell stories about the area was using words like fire and brimstone, you know, words that he was familiar with. So when people heard this and heard this area of this fire and brimstone, they referred to it as Coulter's hell. You know, John Coulter must have gone through or found hell while he was out there. And that was kind of the first name that this, this area took on. You know, I should back up a little bit. I mentioned this is 1807. Lewis and Clark, what they start their journey, 1803, 1804. So John Coulter was originally with Lewis and Clark, and he separated and he came into Yellowstone by himself or came down in this area. And Lewis and Clark never made it into Yellowstone. You know, they went uh, kind of closer to the Bozeman area, if you're familiar with Bozeman, Montana. Anyways, John Coulter is kind of the first record we have of any white man in the area. And, you know, there's, there's a great book. Uh, it's called Give Your Heart to the Hawks by Wynn Blevins. And it has some great mountain man stories in there. And I believe it's him that breaks down the park in this way, that the way, same way that 
I break down the park. I think it's a great way to do it. And that's from 1800 to 1840 would be the time of the mountain man. And we really 1820 to 1840 was the beaver trade. So that's what brought these mountain men to the West was the beaver. And they're the first ones that put the area on a map. They're the ones that literally started mapping the area and compiling these maps. And this is also, you know, get a few things that happened during this time. And one is the name change. I mentioned it came from the Native Americans, this name Yellowstone. The story kind of behind it is, is over by Billings, Montana, which is just outside the park. You have the river that flows through there. And the river flows by some yellow sandstone bluffs. And so the Native Americans called the river the Yellowstone. That was their, their interpretation. And the Yellowstone River flows from and originates out of out of Yellowstone Lake or in that area. The mountain men knew this, so they referred to this as the Yellowstone Country, uh, the area that the, the river flows from. So over time, knowing that the mountain men referred to this as Yellowstone Country, when it became time to name this as a national park, it took on that name of, of Yellowstone. But with the mountain men, you had all kinds of characters out here. Um, you know, some of them you might be familiar with or heard of them before. You know, there's Jim Bridger, one of the most famous, uh, Jedediah Smith, I think my favorite, uh, Davy Jackson, the Sublet Brothers. So if you've heard of Sublet Wyoming or Davy Jackson for Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Hugh Glass, uh, the movie The Revenant came out a couple years ago and I think a lot more people are familiar with him now. And if you have, you know, watch the movie again or read the book, find the story because Hugh Glass, you know, is based on a real character. But also there's reference to Jim Bridger in that movie. And also Andrew Henry was the, the first owner or one of the owners of the uh, Rocky Mountain Fur Company. He's the one that brought out Hugh Glass and Jim Bridger in that group and ended up making the first fort west of the Mississippi. So if you're staying in the West Yellowstone area, just south of there, there's Henry's Lake. There's the Henry's Fork of the Snake River. That's where all that comes from is from Andrew Henry. During this time, you start to get stories about Yellowstone in this area. And, you know, the mountain men are, are good at telling lies. Or, you know, for them, it wasn't a lie. It was spinning a yarn, telling a tall tale. Yeah, I think Jim Bridger was probably the best with these stories. And, you know, the stories that would end up in a, a dime novel. And a couple of the stories, kind of the way that I remember them. And, you know, sometimes as a guide, our stories get embellished a little bit, just like the mountain men did. But, uh, what I remember with Jim Bridger and a couple of stories, my two favorite was one, you know, talking about uh, his petrified trees that we have in Yellowstone. And, and he would say, there was this petrified tree with a petrified bird sitting on a petrified nest with petrified eggs singing a petrified song. And then the other one talking about the a canyon here in Yellowstone, he would say that there was this canyon so big that you would yell into it at night and your echo would wake you up in the morning. So just a couple of the fun stories, and you could see with those type of stories, people would be like, yeah, it's, it's probably not true. You know, it's, it's this area that they're describing doesn't exist. And that's kind of how this time was. I mean, you, you start to get some place names, and, you know, people are seeing the hot springs and geysers and telling stories, but nobody really believes that this, such an area could exist. And in 1840, things kind of change over. You know, the beaver trade's done. The silk trade starts. The mountain men no longer have a job. Well, as far as, you know, as far as fur trapping, some of them switch over like Jim Bridger and become guides. As you start getting people that are coming, coming west, you have the manifest destiny, this westward expansion. 
And the government has offered people 160 acres. If you go settle a piece of land, I believe it was over a five-year period, you make some kind of profit off of it, the government would basically give you that, give you that property. So you have this westward expansion. And, you know, I, I say that kind of the three main trails, the three trails I, I refer to are going to be the California Gold Trail. You have the, the Mormon Trail to Salt Lake and the Oregon Trail, of course, to Oregon. And so people are starting to spread, spread west. And the reason I mention this is, you know, Yellowstone is a high plateau. It's a hard area to access. It's a rough area to live, especially in the winter times. Although we're seeing all this area starting to grow around it, you know, Salt Lake City, Helena, Bozeman, Montana, places are starting to grow. Yellowstone is untouched by the, the private parties here. And, you know, that goes back and you know, all the way back through the natives is, yes, they, they used the land, they had this land, but from my understanding, nobody was living here full time. You go back to 1850 or about 1850, and that's when the Little Ice Age ended. So right now, you know, if I look out my window in Island Park, Idaho, there's a lot of snow on the ground. I and mean, it's cold out there. It's snowing right now, actually. You go back to 1850, the end of the Little Ice Age, it was colder and it was snowier and just not a great place that you'd want to spend the winter. And I mean, that could be anywhere from November to end of March, end of April, that would be a tough time to be in Yellowstone. So anyway, so it never fell into really private hands at that time. And, you know, that goes from about 1840 to about 1870, probably before 1870. Is in 1869, you had a big moment happen at Promontory Point or Promontory Summit in Utah. And that's the finish of the Transcontinental Railroad. And that allows easier access to Yellowstone and to the, well, to the West in general at that time. And during this time, 1800s, uh, excuse me, 1860s, especially towards the end, you know, 1869, you're starting to get these these more of a scientific era begins. You know, you have still this unbelief that such an area as Yellowstone can exist, still stories out there about it. And so you start to get these expeditions. And the ones that I'll mention is, you know, you have the what's called the Folsom Cook Expedition was one of the first ones. You can even go back to the DeLacy Expedition. I'm going to mention the Washburn Expedition. So that's where the name Mount Washburn comes from. And the Washburn Expedition, they came through Yellowstone. In general, what I'll mention is they're the ones that named Old Faithful. They watched the Old Faithful go off several times over the course of the day from a distant hillside. Back at that time, Old Faithful was erupting about every hour, about every 60 minutes. And they said it was so faithful, you could almost set your watch to it. And that's the story of where Old Faithful gets its name from. But with this expedition... There's some great stories involved and different things happen. There's a story of, of Truman Everest. You know, he was lost for 37 days in Yellowstone. And that's a different story I'll probably share later. But they had some people that were well known with this group, like Nathaniel Langford. And so when they went back out, they shared some of these stories with newspapers. And for the most part, the response they got was, those are great stories, but we don't publish fiction in our papers. So there was still this unbelief such an area could exist. Then you move in in 1871 and 72, and you get the Hayden Expedition. You have Ferdinand Hayden, or so that's where the name Hayden Valley comes from in Yellowstone. And, you know, did a little bit more on these expeditions than previously. They probably brought biologists and botanists and geologists, different scientists with them. But what ended up being of the greatest value on this tour was having a photographer, William Henry Jackson, and a painter by the name of Thomas Moran. 
Now, William Henry Jackson, one of his cameras he has is, you know, a big box camera. Think of this big camera on a tripod, and you've probably seen pictures. You have to put the sheet over the top of your head. The film was an 8 by 10 inch piece of glass, and that glass had to be developed within an hour. So you had to have different chemicals. You had to have a dark room. It was a big part of this, this trip to have a photographer and this camera. And then Thomas Moran, uh, a painter, he did watercolors, and he was young. I believe he was like 19, first time on the horses he came out on this trip. And he painted the area. Not only did he paint, he took a lot of sketches and a lot of notes so he could paint, keep on painting Yellowstone after he left into the future. But these two people ended up being the most important or there, what they did. As far as the camera and the photography, I mean, if you compare photographs now to, you know, brand new camera back then, there was a big difference. You know, not a lot of contrast in the images, no color. You know, it was all black and white. It was not a great image, but it was enough to say, hey, look what we saw. You know, whether it's a hot spring or geyser or the canyon and say this exists out there. You have the paintings from Thomas Moran where he could add the color. He could add the detail and give it life. Between these two mediums, they had the photography and the painting. When they got back, there was a few people that they made a presentation before Congress and said, we need to do something to protect this area before it falls into private hands. Congress wrote up this bill. On March 1st, 1872, it came across the president's desk. Now on my tours, 99% of people, I think, give credit to Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. But it was much before his time. And so this was President Grant that signed this in and signed in the world's first national park, March 1st, 1872. You know, in one part, just one part of that bill that was, was created, it says, for the enjoyment and the benefit of the people. So the question now becomes, we have a national park. What do we do with it? You know, at the beginning, there was a couple different superintendents that were, well, they created this position for this a superintendent, somebody that was in charge of Yellowstone. And there was a couple different people that did that. We'll move forward to 1886 when the army was called in, the cavalry was called in, and the cavalry ended up being there for 40 years. So if you visit Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone, that's their headquarters for Yellowstone now, and that's what the cavalry set up back in 1886. Take a look around. Do the little walking tour they have there. You can see where the parade grounds were. You can see Officer's Row and the, the officer's buildings. You can see the barracks back behind. And that area has a lot of, a lot of history there. And the Army, you know, they're not scientists. They, they did the best for what they knew at the time. You know, they, they stopped the poaching from the bison and created a breeding program, the Lamar Buffalo Ranch, and brought the, the bison population back. At the same time, they annihilated some of our predators from Yellowstone. You know, they would stop people from carving their names into the hot springs to try to help protect some of that area. And at the same time, you know, there's a picture of the, the Buffalo soldiers with their bikes on Mammoth Hot Springs on the terraces. There was some kind of regulation that was brought into the park to kind of help protect it. And they were here until 1916 and 1916. The Park Service was officially formed. If you go back and look at the Army or the Cavalry uniforms in 1916, you'll see that that's very similar to what the Park Service is wearing today. That's where those, those uniforms came from, as they were designed after the Calvary at that time. But there's, there's a lot more history. You know, those, that first little while and the creation of the National Park, March 1st, 1872, is what I wanted to share with you today. You know, you could get into further details than I did about 
different parts of that. And in future episodes, listen, because I'll, I'll tell you about the story of maybe Sean Coulter's run where the, the Blackfeet chased him, or Truman Everest and him being lost in Yellowstone, or the Nez Pierce coming through the, the park on their, on their way to try to, to meet with Sitting Bull up in Canada. There's a lot of history there. History is one of my favorite things, and I will share, I'll share more of that with you in the future. Thanks for tuning in again. Thanks for listening to Tied to Nature's Yellowstone, the podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Keep up to date with Tied to Nature and Think Tank Photo on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Ooh.